If you've got a bulletin, there is an outline where you can follow along with what we're going to discuss this morning. If you have a Bible, you can take it out and find 2 Kings chapter 5. It's going to be our passage this morning. This is week 5 of 8 in a series called Little G Gods. And we're talking about the things in our lives that are good things that are blessings from God many times, but that we allow to become ultimate things and that end up becoming idols that we love and we trust and we obey. This morning we're going to talk about the little g God of success, which is a little bit different than some of the other little g gods we've talked about so far. You know, when I say uh, that love can be a little g God, most of you can sort of conjure up a picture of a person, a spouse, a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. When I say money can be a little g-god, you can certainly picture your bank account and how full it is or how empty it is. When I say children can be a little g-god or grandchildren, you can conjure up a picture of, of your kiddos or your grandkiddos or if you don't have kiddos and grandkiddos, maybe you conjure up a, an image of the kiddos and grandkiddos you wish you had. All those are kind of concrete things, but this morning when we talk about success, it's not really a a concrete thing. It's not really something we can draw a picture of and say, this is exactly what it looks like. And so I have a couple of fears as we talk about the little g-god of success. One fear is that because it's more of an abstract concept than something concrete, that you and I might be more prone to sort of ignore it and to just assume that it's not a problem for you or it's not a problem for me. And I don't want us to make that mistake. The second mistake that I fear is that you listen to everything that we say. We're talking about this little g-god of success. And you leave thinking that success in life is totally unimportant. And I don't want you to leave with that mindset. I don't want you to leave with that thought in your mind that succeeding doesn't matter. In fact, I think succeeding does matter. I think you trying your best at whatever it is that you're doing is really important. I agree with the New Testament when it says you should work heartily as if you're working for the Lord. So if you're a teacher, I think you should try to be teacher of the year every year. You should try to succeed and say, I want that award every single year. If you sell cars, you should try in integrity and honesty to sell more cars than anybody else. You should try to succeed in that. If you're a student, You should try to make the very best grades possible that you can make. Or if you're a a student athlete, you should try to be the best basketball player, football player, baseball player. Whatever it is that you do, you should try to do it to the very, very, very best of your ability. Nothing that I say this morning is intended to say, don't try to succeed. I want you to succeed. But I know my heart, and I know your heart's. And success, this idea of winning or being first or being the biggest or being the best, very subtly, even as we're saying, I just want to do my best, I just want to do excellent, I just want to honor the Lord in this, very subtly it can become the most important thing in our lives. And so this morning I want to give you a few signs that maybe success is a little g-god in your life. And we'll go through these pretty quickly. Number one, your identity is wrapped up in what you do. Your identity gets wrapped up in what you do. There's a part of American culture that you may have never thought about, but it's strange to a lot of people from other cultures. And that is the very first time we meet somebody, one of the first questions we usually ask them is, what do you do? 
we're less concerned about who they are as a person, and we tend to be more concerned about what it is they do. And you can think about times where you've introduced yourself to people, you've been the new person in a church or a school or a place of business or wherever you may be. We, just, we, we judge people. We tend to have this conception that you and I are defined by what it is we do rather than who we are. And if you find your identity, well, and I'm a preacher, you found it in the wrong place. If you find your identity in, well, well I'm a teacher, or, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, this is what I do for work, then you've got your identity located in the wrong place because a day is coming where that will probably be taken away from you. Maybe through retirement, maybe through no choice of your own. And when your identity is, is rooted in something that you do and you lose that thing, you find yourself sort of wondering, well, who in the world am I? You're not really sure. Number two, you're a workaholic or a hobbyaholic. And I don't know that you're going to find that in Webster, so I'll define it for you. A workaholic is somebody who totally is consumed by their job. Okay? We're not talking necessarily about number of hours worked. Some of you may say, well, I work a lot of hours. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a workaholic. Pastors work a lot of hours. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're a workaholic. But if your identity is wrapped up totally in work and that consumes you and you make sacrifices for work, meaning you sacrifice family consistently over and over and over again, meaning you sacrifice church involvement and participation consistently over and over and over again in the name of work, and work is what drives you, that may be an issue. The flip side is you may only go to work so that you can get a paycheck and then turn around and be a hobbyaholic. And that may be fishing, or that may be golf, or that may be quilting, or that may be any number of things that you just enjoy doing on the side. But you know your heart, and you know your life. If you're controlled by work, there's a problem. And if you're controlled by your hobby and your desire to succeed in that, there's also a problem. Number three, your achievements distort your self-image. Your achievements distort your self-image. Let me explain what I mean. I believe that every last one of you is really good at something. Maybe a couple of somethings. Maybe three or four somethings. But no one in this room is good at everything. And the problem for many of us is that we find a little bit of success in the one thing that we are really good at, and we allow that to go to our head, and we become like the fool in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 18.2, The fool takes no pleasure in understanding, only in expressing his own opinion. And some of you have found success in one area of your life. You're really good at something, and you can sort of stake your claim to that. But then it distorts your self-image, and you begin to think you're an expert in all things. Like you're an expert in foreign policy. You're an expert in lawn care. You're an expert on marriage counseling, especially other people's marriages, not so much your own, but other people's, what they need to be doing. You're an expert in parenting, not so much with your kids, but with other people's kids. This is what you ought to do with your kids. You're an expert in high school football. I mean, you just know all of it. And the reality check for you and for me is, no, you don't, and no, I don't. Don't let success in one area of your life distort your, your self-image. Now, listen to me. The flip side can also be true. Some of you are sitting there saying, I've never succeeded in anything in my life. 
I failed at everything I've tried to do. I tried to do this and it didn't work out and I tried to do that and it ended terribly and I tried this and that and I just can't seem to find anything that I'm really particularly good at. And the danger is you can also allow failure, not just success, but failure to distort your self-image. Where rather than seeing yourself as a person, a human being created in God's image, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and finding your value in the gospel, all you can see is how worthless you are because you failed in everything that you've ever tried. Don't let success and don't let failure distort your self-image. Number four, you feel the need to exaggerate your accomplishments. You like to tell fish stories. Maybe it's not that you exaggerate so much, but it's just that you want to make sure everyone knows about all of your accomplishments. Or maybe it's not even your accomplishments, but it's the accomplishments of your kids or your grandkids. And as you start to think about this, I hope you're convicted like I am when it comes to social media. We use social media pretty much to tell everybody all the great moments in our lives. And we want everyone to know that. Now listen, I'm going to keep using social media. I'm going to keep putting pictures of my kids up there. And you need to keep liking them because they're supposed to be liked. I mean, they're the best. I'm telling you. But even as I say that and you laugh about it, I hope you see the danger. And that you feel this compulsion or I feel this compulsion to just make sure that everyone knows every time somebody we know or ourselves does something great. You ever gotten one of those Christmas letters from a family that maybe lives way far off and it's all about their kids and it really doesn't have anything to do with Jesus or Christmas. It just is like a resume for their kids, like all the great things they did in the last year and you just sort of wonder, what in the world? Wow, you guys are the greatest. Your, your year was better than our year. Like all we did is keep the kids alive. But this is impressive. Be careful about exaggerating your accomplishments or making sure everyone knows about all of them. Next, you're willing to sin in order to be on top. Are any of us surprised at this point in time when another athlete gets caught using performance-enhancing drugs? No. Are we surprised when another college or university gets caught paying its student-athletes? We shouldn't be. Are you surprised when you hear about a, a politician or maybe someone uh, moving high up through their, their profession or their field who gets caught lying on their resume and they lose their dream job because what they've put on that resume is not true? Are we surprised when families will sacrifice family time and church time in the name of athletics or academics or whatever they want their kids to succeed in? We're not surprised by any of these things. If you will sin in order to be the best, in order to be on top, if you will sacrifice essential things just for a little bit of success, you've got something that you need to think about. You know, studies show today, I don't know if some of you have probably read this because you're educators, studies show today that students, grade school, middle school, high school, college students, they genuinely don't think that cheating is a moral issue. They really don't think it's a problem. Their, their conscience isn't pricked. 
They don't feel any compulsion to confess or to admit that it was wrong. They just don't see a problem in it. Why? Because we, collective we, have drummed into them that success is the highest value, not character. And if success is the highest value, then you do whatever it takes to succeed. And if there's a shortcut, you take it. And if there's an easier way, you take it. The last idea is this. You know this one's coming. You think success will make you happy. You're so consumed with work or you're so consumed with your hobbies or you're so consumed with your kids or your grandkids or whatever. Whatever success lurks in your life is a temptation. You're so consumed with it, you chase it thinking it will really make you happy. And this morning in 2 Kings 5, we're going to read a story about a man named Naaman who had to lay down this little g-god of success in order to receive grace from God. And ultimately, just to sort of cut to the chase, that's the goal for you is to lay down whatever little g-god you're clinging to so that with open hands you can receive God's grace and his mercy. Look in the scriptures, 2 Kings 5, and we're going to read verse 1 all the way to 14. The word of God says this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, this, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes... And he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. 
according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I want you to notice several things in this story. We're just going to kind of walk through it. So keep the scriptures open and, and look at verse 1. Look at how we're introduced to Naaman. He's a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He's at the top of his field. He's the boss. He's the captain. He's achieved this position in life. He was a great man with his master. He held high favor with the king of Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. And the Lord, uh, the Lord had given victory to Syria through him. Now, he wouldn't have really recognized that. He wouldn't have said, the Lord has given these victories to Syria. Naaman's perspective would have been, I've given these victories to Syria. But the author is sort of just cluing you in, saying God has, has done some great things through him. He's won some battles through this man. He's allowed him to have these victories. He has prestige and honor and success and all of these things. And then you come to the end of this impressive resume, and it says, but he was a leper. All of these things in the plus column, and he's got this one thing in the negative column. All of these things that he feels like he's achieved in life, and this one thing that there is nothing he can do to deal with, is a constant reminder to Naaman that despite all of the military victories and all of the favor and all of the popularity and all of the battles and all of the valor and the reputation and the commander and all of that stuff, he ultimately can't fix what's wrong in his life read this week a story I had forgotten about it. It was 2009. Tom Brady uh, gave an interview with 60 Minutes. He had just won his third Super Bowl and he had just won the Super Bowl MVP and he sat down for this interview on 60 Minutes and he says this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this. And the guy sitting across from him in the interview pipes up and he says, he kind of leans forward. I watched it this week. He says, what's the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I read just a few weeks ago about another story. It's just so similar to this. I'll mention it. It was 2011. Aaron Rodgers just won the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. He was named Super Bowl MVP. He's sitting on the team bus after the Super Bowl victory, after the party in the locker room, after the awards and the confetti and all the stuff, and I'm going to Disney and, you know, the whole nine yards. And he's sitting on the bus, and he's got the Vince Lombardi trophy in one hand, and he's got the Super Bowl MVP trophy in another hand, and he's sitting on the bus. And by his own account, this is what's running through his brain. You ready? I hope I don't just do this. Like he got the thing he had been chasing. If you're a football player and you're in the NFL, it doesn't get any better than winning the Super Bowl, the Vince Lombardi trophy in one hand, Super Bowl MVP in the other hand, and he gets that little G God that he's been chasing and he looks at it and he says, huh, it's kind of disappointing. It's not exactly what I thought it would be. I hope there's something else. You look at Naaman, and he's achieved a lot in his life. He's got this one thing that nags him. And I believe is a God-given gift in his life. Something that's there to remind him. You can't win enough military victories to fix this. You can't get enough medals of honor 
to make this go away. This nagging thing inside of you that you hope you don't just do this or you hope there's something else out there for you to do. Naaman, there's something. And you're not going to find it in more success. Verse 2 to 6, if you look in the text, describes the Syrians going on a raid and they carry off a little girl from the land of Israel. Now that's a very just fly over the top detail and you can imagine the heartache that's actually involved in that verse. These people go to another nation, they attack and they raid and they pillage and they plunder and they do all sorts of things and they take this little girl from her home and she ends up with Naaman. And you know that Naaman is desperate because here he is, the commander of the army of Syria, taking advice from who? A Hebrew slave and a little girl at that. Naaman would never in a million years stand up in front of his soldiers and let a little girl boss him around, right? Wouldn't happen. But here he is in his desperation, listening to a slave, listening to a little girl. And just pay attention to what her advice is to Naaman. Did you, did you catch it in verse 3? Would that my Lord were with who? The prophet who's in Samaria. She says, Naaman needs to go see the prophet. Naaman goes to his boss and he says, hey, I think I found a way to be healed. I think I found a way out of this. This is what I need. I need a letter to who? The king. Why would he do that? Why would he listen to the advice in one sense of go to see the prophet in Israel? And he's going to Israel, but instead of going to see the prophet, he goes to see the king. It's because Naaman knew that he was a big deal. Naaman knew Naaman was important. And so he gathers all these signs of his importance. What does he get? I'm going to take some silver, and I'm going to take some gold, and I'm going to take ten changes of clothing, and I'm going to take this entourage with me, and I'm going to march right over there to Israel, and I'm going to take this letter from my king to the king of Israel, from this successful man, through this successful man, to this successful man, and I'm going to be ready to be healed. I'm going to show up with all this stuff, and I'm going to pay for it, or I'm going to earn it, or I'm going to just impress them when I come marching in. Remember, they would have been scared of Naaman, right? He's been making raids on Israel, kidnapping people and taking them back to Syria. So here he shows up, not to fight, but with all these trappings of success, and he wants to be healed. The king, he's not mentioned by name in this story, but his name is Jehoram. He kind of freaks out a little bit. He knows that he can't do what Naaman's asking him to do. And what does his mind immediately go to? Like, this is a setup. Like, you've been coming, stealing our people, attacking our lands, taking our money, and now you come, up, come in with this demand that I can't meet in a million years. You're just trying to pick a fight. We don't want to fight. Tears his robe. And Elisha sends a servant. Verse Verse 7 and verse 8, and this servant comes in, and the servant says, Hey, you need to leave the king, and you need to come see the prophet. Now we're back to the prophet. So here comes Naaman, and his whole entourage, and all his stuff, and all his gold, and all this clothing, and he just sort of plops it all on the front porch at Elisha's house, right? Okay. Had to swallow his pride a little bit to leave the palace and to come to Elisha's, but I'm here and I've got my stuff and I'm ready to be healed. And what does Elisha do? He stays in the house. 
And he sends now the third servant out to talk to Naaman, right? He had to listen to his little servant girl back home in Syria. He had to listen to this servant that Elisha sent into the presence of the king. And now he sends this other servant out. This is the third time he's listened to a servant. And the servant says, here's the deal. Go jump in the river. Seven times and you'll be healed. Why does Naaman go off in a rage when all he's told to do is jump in the river? It's because he's so eat up with himself and his success and all the trappings of his success that he's parading on Elisha's front porch. He really thinks that they ought to honor him, at least come out and speak to me, take my stuff, the stuff that I've fought for and earned, wave your hand in the air, say some magical words and make me well. At least come out and give me that dignity. And Elijah just stays in his recliner. Elisha, he just kicked back. He sends a servant out and he says, yeah, go tell him to jump in the river. So he leaves in a rage. He leaves in a huff. He's pouting. These people don't recognize who I am. He's probably already in his mind plotting how he's going to come back to Israel and kidnap more people. And for the fourth time, who is it that speaks to him? A servant. I hope you realize the humility lesson that's going on here with big shot Naaman. Slave girl tells him you need to go be healed. Someone in the presence of the king says you're in the wrong place. Go down the road. Someone comes out when Elisha's sitting on his recliner and says you just need to go jump in the river. And now it's his own servants who are traveling with him that say, look, I don't want to make you mad, but we've come all this way. Don't you think you should just jump in the river? Just get in there seven times and see what happens. You don't know the exact motivation in his heart. There's not a lot of detail. You'd love to know more about the conversation, but for whatever reason, he goes back, he gets in the river, and the Scripture says this. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. No paying for it. We don't want your money. No, go kill the wicked witch and bring me her broomstick. Like, I don't need you to do anything heroic. I just need you to go jump in a river. I need you to swallow your pride, get over yourself, and jump in the water, and you'll be healed. Lay down all of these little G-gods of success and all of the things you're so proud about. Just forget about that stuff for a minute and humble yourself enough to get in that nasty, stinking river. And he does it, laying down these idols and jumping in, and he receives God's grace and his mercy. Listen, what you read about when Naaman is healed is God's grace. And Naaman had to learn you can't buy grace. The moment you start to talk about buying grace, it's not grace anymore. The moment you start to talk about earning grace, it's not grace anymore. The moment God is giving you grace because of something you've done, it's not grace anymore. And Naaman's got to learn, look, I've got to leave all of these things I'm trusting in here on the porch, here in the wagon, and i just got to go jump in a river like a fool. I've got to humble myself and quit trusting in these things, and he experiences God's grace. The story goes on. It talks about he, he wants to pay he wants to leave the stuff with him, and Elisha says, no, 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 we don't need the stuff. Elisha sends Gehazi out, and he says, no, we don't need it. You can't pay for it. Take your stuff back with you. And Naaman has this request where he says, I want to take two carts of dirt back because I'm going back to Syria, but I'm not going to worship their gods anymore. 
He's been soundly converted. And he says, I want to take land from the promised land. And I'm going to take it back and I'm going to set it up. And when I pray to God, I'm going to do it on land that came from the promised land. And I'm going to worship the one true God. He is the only God. He says, I know, verse 15, that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. I know this. And he's been converted. He's received God's grace and it's changed him. The last question is this. What is God teaching Naaman? And obviously, by implication, what is he teaching us? Several thoughts. Number one, usually we need other people to expose our idolatry. Naaman had to listen to the slave girl, to the, the servant in the king's presence, to Gehazi on the porch, to his own, his own uh, servants who told him to go back and just go ahead and jump in. Other people were used by God to expose this man's pride and his arrogance and his own success. The same thing is true in your life. You need to be willing, and I need to be willing, to listen to other people and to say, what is it that is most important in my life? What is it that is standing between me and the one true God? What have I, what have I taken as a good thing and allowed to become an ultimate thing? Secondly, God chooses the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. That's how he likes to work. And so you see this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And of all the ways that God could have healed this man, he chooses to do it through four servants in a river in Israel. No magic words, no big ceremony, no lights or, you know, fireworks or anything like that. He makes him leave his home, go to a place where nobody knows the truth about this man, and he just has to jump in a river. And he can't even pay for it. And he can't even earn it. And all along the way, he's listening to slaves telling him what to do, correcting his steps. It's a humility lesson, and it's a reminder that God chooses what is Weak and foolish to shame what is wise and powerful. He does that so that he gets the glory, not me and not you. He gets the glory. Number three, grace is free to the recipient, but it's costly to the giver. And this is where I want you to put your thinking cap on just a little bit. I want you to think about the slave girl at the beginning of the story. She just kind of fades out. But I want you to listen again to what we read about this this girl, we don't even know her name. Second Kings 5.2, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Best case scenario, this is a little girl who woke up one day and a foreign army was marching into her home. They slaughtered a bunch of people and they grabbed her and they left. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario is this is a little girl who woke up one day, saw a foreign army marching on her city, led by Naaman, and her family was slaughtered and she was left alone, so they grabbed her and they took her back to Syria. Either way, it's terrible. You can't imagine the trauma that this young girl experienced. And to add insult to injury of all the people she could end up with in Syria, she ends up with Naaman, the guy who's responsible for the raid in the first place. She gets to this home and she looks around and she realizes this guy's a big deal. He's the commander of the army. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of influence. He's very successful. But he has leprosy. 
And what's her response to that? Is it to laugh at Naaman? Is it to sort of roll her eyes and cluck her tongue and say, well, of all people, you deserve this? He did, but it's not her response. Her response is to send word through the wife, if you go see the prophet, you can be made well. And instead of holding on to the anger and the bitterness and the rage and the hurt that she rightfully felt, she lays it down and she forgives him. It doesn't say that she forgives him, but you know that she did because she's not seeking his worst, she's seeking his best. She had every reason in the world to want him to die and rot. And instead she says, I want you to live and I want you to be well. Go see the prophet. It was free to Naaman, we've established that, but it was costly to the girl. She had to swallow the hurt and the pain and the bitterness and the desire to enact or exact revenge. She had to put all of that away and forgive. When you think about what this girl did for Naaman, I hope you understand it is a small picture of what God has done for you in Christ. He has every right and every reason to only be angry and wrathful at people like you and me who break his law day after day after day after day. We are stubborn. We are hard-hearted. We put a million good things in the place of ultimate thing. And we take God who is the ultimate and we put him down below these other things. We worship all of these idols, all of these little G-gods. And in spite of our sin... God is gracious to us, and he sends Jesus to seek us and to save us and to give his life as a ransom for his people and to forgive us. It was costly to God, and it's free to you and me. Don't ever forget, when you receive grace and forgiveness from God, and you receive it freely, you can't earn it, and you can't pay for it, That while it's free for you, it costs someone else. It costs the Son of God his life. Being crucified in shame and humiliation, being mocked and laughed at and spit upon, it was costly for him. And it's free for you and it's free for me. The last warning is this, or the last lesson. We must constantly be on guard against idolatry. Some of you are sitting in this particular lesson and you think, you know, it's not that I want to be a loser. I just don't think this is a big deal for me. I don't think success is is where I'm tempted to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And that's fine. That may not be the particular area where you you struggle or you're tempted. But you've got to be on guard against all forms of idolatry, against all kinds of little g-gods. And you see this at the end of the story. We won't read it. You can go home and look at the rest of the story. It starts in 2 Kings 5, verse 15. Naaman gets out of the river, and he's healed. No more leprosy. And he comes back to Elisha, and he says, Man, I've got to pay you. I've got, got to give you something for this. And Elisha says, Through Gehazi. Elisha, through Gehazi. It's not how it works. Take your money and you go home. We don't need it. You can't pay for this. That's the point of all of it. So he goes and he takes the dirt with him and all this stuff. And right in the middle of the story is Gehazi. 
somebody we haven't talked about much. Gehazi's little g-god wasn't success. So if yours isn't success, will you have that in common? He was a servant to the prophet. He did struggle with the little g-god of money. And he stands there on the porch. He's got Elisha inside behind him. He watches that caravan pull off down the road in front of him. And all the gold and all the silver and all the clothes are riding off into the sunset. And the wheels start to turn. And his heart starts to face this temptation to think, you know, if you had that stuff, think about what you could do with it. Think about how happy it might make you to have a little money in your pocket. How safe and secure you might be if you didn't have to depend on Elisha for everything, but you had a little backup, a a little emergency fund. He's sitting on the porch. He thinks to himself, and I'm adding a few details, but I think it's, it's fair when you read the story. He thinks, I'm just going to go down the road. Elisha's not going to know. I'm going to go talk to Naaman. And he catches up to him down the road. You know that it's probably out of sight, maybe miles down the road. And he sort of worked up his story, and he, the story he comes up with is, hey, hey, hey. We had a couple of guys stop by the house. And uh, they're, they're good guys. They're really nice guys. And uh, Elisha was wondering if we could have two sets of clothes and a little bit of that money for them just to give them a gift. You remember we've said every week, little g-gods, especially the little g-god of money or the little g-god of success will lead you to a thousand other sins. And here he is making up a foolish, dopey story Sinning, all because he thinks, if I just get my hands on a little bit of that stuff. Look, I don't want all, I don't want all ten. I'm not greedy. I don't need all ten garments. I don't need any of that gold. Just two talents of silver. Two talents of silver, two sets of clothes. That's it. You see how that's, that's how greed fools you, right? You think, well, if I was greedy, I would want the whole cart. He just thinks, I just need a little bit more than what I've got. And the tragedy for Gehazi is he gets the thing that he wants. He gets the thing that he thinks will make him happy. He comes home with the silver and he comes home with the clothes and there's Elisha waiting on him. And he says, because that was so important to you, because you've done this, the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you for the rest of your life. You can look at that as a punishment. God just sort of losing his cool with Gehazi. Or you can look at it as a daily reminder from God to Gehazi to say, your little G-gods will always disappoint you. They will not deliver you, and they will always bring destruction into your life. And we'd kind of like to know what happened with Gehazi. We'd kind of like to know, did he take the lesson? And did he live out his days fearing the Lord? With leprosy? Or did he get bitter? Did he become disillusioned? And we're left to sort of wonder about that. And I think we're left to wonder about it intentionally so that we sort of work ourselves into the story and say, how would I respond in that situation? How will I respond today when I'm presented with the reality of idolatry? Will I be disillusioned? Will I be angry? Will I be bitter? 
about the things that, that I've gotten that haven't made me happy or that I haven't gotten and I think they'll make me happy? Or will I lay all of that down to receive God's grace? I want to ask you to bow and I want to pray for you as we end. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the warnings in Scripture. Father, for this story that shows us the folly of chasing little g gods and looking to them for happiness. Father, I pray for myself. And I pray for the folks in the room. I pray for the folks who will listen online. Father, I pray that you would expose our idolatries. Father, I pray that you would convict us of the folly of chasing these good things that we turn into ultimate things. Father, and I pray that by your grace, we would lay down these idols to receive grace and cleansing and wholeness and mercy and life. Father, I pray for those in the room who have never trusted in Jesus. They've never received what Christ did in living for us and dying for us. And Father, whatever it is that they've put at the center of their life, I pray this morning that it would be replaced with Christ. That he would be our center, that he would be our focus, and that we would pursue and chase him. Father, convince us that Christ and knowing him and serving him, that Christ alone will make us happy. Father, guard our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you stand and we're going to